1: The purpose of the podcast is to educate and inform about health matters affecting adults.
0: From latest research updates to tips on navigating the healthcare system and everything in between.
1: I'm Kirsten. And I'm Lindsay. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks again for tuning in to another episode. Right, again, sorry, we've been a
0: little uh, sporadic in our podcast, but uh, we are in a pandemic, I guess that's our excuse.
1: Yeah, it's been kind of hit or miss here, as you can tell, but um, we're happy to be back this week with hopefully another good episode. Yes, I think it's something we um, often see in the clinic. Right. This week, we decided we would talk about diarrhea. So um, not necessarily a topic that everybody's excited to talk about, but one that we find ourselves talking about quite frequently. Right. We thought it would be helpful to have a more in-depth conversation on it. I think obviously
0: people um, have experienced a limited course due to um, a viral infection, which we commonly refer to as gastroenteritis.
1: Yeah, pretty common to have had that or had even food poisoning at some point in one's life. Generally, um, with those more infectious things, we tend to see those symptoms being limited to a few weeks and so we kind of separate diarrhea into different categories based on, one, how long it's been present for. And so acute would be anything less than four weeks. And again, that tends to be those infections or uh, food poisoning, things like that, tends to get over to resolve all by itself. Chronic is lasting more than four weeks, and that's a broader category of diarrhea, but also one that we see quite a lot in the clinic. Right. And what let's talk about what
0: true diarrhea is. We have some some rules on what makes it diarrhea versus soft stool or going more frequently.
1: Exactly. So yeah, people have different ideas about what it might be. But from a medical perspective, we say it is defined by a high stool frequency. So having more than three bowel movements per day with looser stools than normal. You know, if you're just having one loose stool a day, that doesn't necessarily comprise diarrhea. Or if you're having frequent stools but they're normal in consistency, that's a different phenomenon called hyperdefecation and still needs workup. But um, has different causes than true diarrhea.
0: Right. So I think we're we mainly going to focus on more chronic diarrhea causes
1: today. Exactly. Yep. So again, those acute things tend to be viruses, um, food poisoning. Those more self limited things that get get better on their own. The biggest worry with those are just that people don't get too dehydrated or lose electrolytes. And so, if you know if somebody has a severe diarrhea then it is certainly a good idea to get checked out and make sure that your labs and things are looking okay. Um, But again, often those resolve on their own without treatment or any kind of intervention. And so we'll spend our time today on the chronic diarrhea. Right, so this is uh, greater than
0: three loose watery stools in a day lasting for more than four weeks.
1: And um... maybe we should talk about kind of the broader categories of chronic diarrhea, and then we can break those down a little bit. And um, we won't go into all of the detail, but, you know, there are, there are different types of chronic diarrhea. The first I'd say would be uh, we call it secretory diarrhea, which just means your intestine is secreting fluid into the intestine. And so it tends to be very large volume, really watery stools. Um and there are some specific causes of that. So one example of secretory diarrhea would be small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. This um, is a diagnosis that has become more common in the last several years, or at least we, are, we recognize it more, and I think the general public recognizes it more. And so um, that's normally the small intestines don't have a huge number of bacteria inside them, and certain things can predispose people to getting ex- extra bacterial growth there. And that pre- produces then um, looser, watery stools and bloating and exactly some pain. Exactly, yep. And so um, that's a, a fairly common one that we can test for and we can treat when present. A lot of times these diarrhea, you know, with, with these more chronic diarrheas, we're looking at other symptoms too. So like you mentioned, Lindsay, uh, bloating and pain, does eating affect it or... Is it still happening during the night when you're not eating? You know, things like that can help sort that out. And with small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, it doesn't stop when you stop eating. It continues. So it can happen overnight too. And that's one way to help kind of distinguish between that and some other causes. So I'm not going to spend too much time on that right now. But another kind of broad category of chronic diarrhea would be Um, diarrhea, we call it osmotic, which you don't have to worry about that, but it's maybe one example would be like lactose intolerance where people just aren't absorbing lactose well, again, associated with bloating, increased gas production, but it does get better when people fast. And so that's one way, you know, overnight, you're not going to necessarily have symptoms or if you're avoiding the, um, offending agent, then you won't have symptoms during that time. Right. Right. Another category would be fatty stools um, or steatorrhea, and so that would be kind of bulky, greasy, oily stools that are frequent and loose, and there are several conditions that will cause this as well. Do you want to mention any of those, Lindsay? Oh, if you have a pancreatic
0: insufficiency would be one that comes to mind.
1: Yeah, that, um, celiac disease, again, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth can look like this too. Um, or you're just not producing the digestive enzymes that you need. So again, pancreatic insufficiency. And yeah, so that's a pretty specific um, symptom to watch for too when people come in and kind of describe those greasy, oily stools. Then we're looking for particular causes of that. And then to, to jump to another broad category, we have impaired mobility. So when the intestines aren't moving things through correctly, Um, And that can cause bloating, nausea. Sometimes it's slow transit where you actually have constipation, but sometimes it can cause diarrhea too. And these things can occur in hyperthyroidism when thyroid levels are too high, in diabetes, uh, some other autoimmune conditions. So um, usually we see other symptoms along with that, symptoms that would suggest whatever condition is causing it. And then the last one would be inflammatory Inflammatory bowel disease, you've probably um, heard of, tends to cause fevers, bleeding, abdominal pain, potentially weight loss. And then we're talking about things like Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, but um, some infections can also create a similar picture, such as Clostridium difficile infection or C. diff infection. So again, those are just broad categories, and we actually wanted to spend time on one that's maybe not necessarily in any of these categories directly, and that would be irritable bowel syndrome. Do you want to talk a little bit about that, Lindsay? We're learning more and more about these things, but certainly irritable bowel um,
0: is one of the most common gastrointestinal disorders um, that is out there, and it is associated with um, chronic diarrhea or constipation, but we're going to stick to the to the um IBS that has diarrhea association with it, since we're talking about diarrhea today. Um it's associated with abdominal pain, um, with distension and bloating. And often is um the way we can distinguish it is worsening with kind of stress or anxiety. Um different types of situations that make you stressed or anxious can worsen the diarrhea in this case. So um can also happen other times and seems to be associated with, um, sometimes people can, can say certain foods. Um, so then, then there's question whether that it is IBS or not, but I think still some people with, um, IBS diarrhea associated, um, can, can eliminate foods and improve things and, Um, Certainly we
1: can treat the anxiety mood disorder and control things. So it is kind of one of those diagnoses where we can't necessarily make the diagnosis without other testing. It's kind of what we call a diagnosis of exclusion. So if it looks like something else, we have to rule out, you know, an inflammatory bowel disease or a malabsorption bowel disease first. And then we can get to irritable bowel. However, if somebody has a lifelong history of kind of, you know, looser stools when they're anxious, fluctuating with constipation, then it's easier to say, you know, this really is consistent with irritable bowel disease. Right. And the, the most common
0: form of treatment is to to encourage um, increased fiber. So through a fiber supplement um, or um, fiber in your diet actually controls, helps control.
1: Yeah. And Lindsay, have you kind of talked with patients at all about, are there certain things that tend to trigger it? You mentioned some foods. I've heard from people, you know, eating out at certain restaurants will trigger diarrhea symptoms. Any Anything that you've heard in terms of kind of common things that tend to make it worse for people who suffer from irritable bowel syndrome? Um, I think in general, it seems to be more fatty, rich foods is what I hear Uh, most often. Yeah, I would agree. Or highly processed foods, too. I think, um, you know, people who tend to follow what we would consider to be a lower inflammatory diet, which would be more whole foods, whole grains, vegetables, beans, things like that, um, tend to have fewer symptoms than the ones who are eating more highly processed foods.
0: You wonder, because I think we consider a lot of people IBS when... it can come down to just a food intolerance type of situation, right? Because some people can really narrow things down. Um, when somebody comes to me for the first time saying, you know, I have this loose stool that seems to be going on, you know, for months, and I'm not losing weight and there's no blood, but um, if I eat something, then all of a sudden I have to go to the bathroom, right? Um One of the first things I have them do is do kind of a food diary or log what they're eating and what their bowels do to see if you can come up with any um, association to types of foods.
1: Absolutely, yeah. I'll start with food logging is a great idea, sometimes even on somewhat of an elimination diet where we take out some things and just see if symptoms get better before we gradually add them back. Um, And it, it does depend on their presenting symptoms. You know, if it's more bloating and discomfort after eating, I think an elimination diet can be really helpful. If it's a lot of diarrhea, I think I would tend to start with a journal first before we go for eliminating things. Right. And what are your top things that you're having them eliminate? So again, I would say I tend to focus on processed foods or um, you know, if they tell me specifically, this really happens after I eat out, you know, then having a discussion about where are you eating, uh, what kinds of foods, and it does tend to be the greasier foods or fried foods or things like that. So taking those out initially, um, you know, later on, we can talk about the FODMAP diet. I don't know if we want to get into that yet, but right. there are certain foods that do result in more production of gas as they're being digested. And so because of that, they if somebody is sensitive to that, they can, um, you know, that gas can kind of help propel things through more quickly. And so reducing the foods that are high FODMAPs or higher, high gas production can help with that bloating and the looser stools. Um, we, you know, it's a pretty broad list right. that uh, of foods that are high FODMAP foods. And so asking people to eliminate all of those is difficult, but sometimes even if we say, let's just see if you can reduce these a little bit and see what happens, um, a lot of times people will have benefit with that.
0: Right. I think um, the other big thing is you can become lactose intolerant um, at any point. Absolutely. In your lifetime. So um, if you're associating it with milk, dairy products, you um, When you get the extra symptoms, then we often just say to eliminate uh, those foods.
1: Exactly. And see if things get better. And I think, like you said, really journaling is the best way to sort of start to pinpoint when your symptoms are happening and what they may correlate with. And if you journal what you eat, when you're having more symptoms, and also maybe just, you know, big stressors or things that might be happening, too, that helps us get a sense of what's really going on. It can be a little time intensive, but it does does really help paint a, paint a picture of what's happening. Right. I think... It's always interesting because I
0: tend to see a lot more people for loose stools complaints in the clinic um, kind of as summer hits or when it's cherry season, right? And you start talking to them and, yeah, I've been eating a whole bunch of cherries Absolutely. every day. So often you just got to think, what am, what have I been eating? What have I changed? And you can come up with the answer. Um, yes, certainly fresh, th-
1: fresh produce will do that during the summer.
0: Right. Um, There's... Oftentimes, um, I've narrowed it. We've narrowed it down with patients to co- certainly coffee and caffeine can cause diarrhea on its own. But I've had a lot of people who've narrowed it down to when they changed their coffee. Instead of brewing a, a full pot, they use the instant coffee uh, little cups for an individual cup. And that has been what's triggered it. So whether it's that they aren't cleaning out the system good enough or actually the, the coffee itself, I don't know. But I've had a, a lot of people who we've narrowed it down to that. And interestingly enough, I've had a handful of people who it, have narrowed it down to like the uh, an uncooked egg yolk. If it's cooked, they do fine with it. Huh. But if they have uncooked egg yolk, it affects them. So just interesting. some interesting things that I've ha- found that more than one person has narrowed,
1: yeah. narrowed things down to. Yeah, absolutely. And again, I think um, there's certainly trends that we see with, you know, more processed foods. Again, those coffee cups, I don't know if they have some some other whatever ingredients in them aside from just the coffee beans to help preserve or help give flavor or something. Um, but. That's one that I have seen too. Um, certainly I've also had
0: it be people's kind of supplements or, or multivitamins or supplements that they're using. Um so often we think those things are very benign and and healthful, right? Um but often they can contribute to to loose stools. loose
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Not only supplements, but of course, it's always good to look at medications, too. And if there's a medication change in the last several weeks or a dose change, sometimes those can be a factor as well. Right.
0: And I think there's certain groups of medications that are much more likely and in um, kind of the kind of patients that we take care of, um, the older adult often. Uh, the number one diabetes medication, right? Um, metformin is a big cause of diarrhea. Certainly all the SSRIs, so antidepressants are a big source of loose stools in people. And then um, something you can commonly get over the counter, um, the what we call PPIs or proton pump inhibitors, um, are actually a, a big source of loose stool.
1: And then the common medication for dementia to right. Aricept or Dinepazil is also a very common cause of that. So, yeah, many, many different things that can contribute to that. And, you know, if, if you are having symptoms and it seems like it's medication related, it doesn't necessarily mean you can't take that medication, but it might mean that the dose needs to be adjusted. Um, so certainly something to talk with your doctor about. Sometimes switching
0: from the short-acting versions to the long-acting versions can can be the answer too. Exactly. You know, another thing that um, we often narrow it down to is somebody's doing like protein shakes or or protein supplements in some way nutritional supplements and those can often be a trigger for loose stool
1: yeah absolutely and it's hard to know you know with those if it's just the supplement itself or the the protein um you know, powder or whatever they're adding. If there are artificial sweeteners, those can certainly be a trigger for many people right. because they're not well absorbed. And so, you know, anything, any of those artificial sweeteners can cause diarrhea too. And a lot of times in protein um, supplements or things, they're they're sweetened, but it's artificially so that it's not adding carbohydrates. And so um, I would look for that too. Right. What were those one potato chips that were made back in the
0: Oh, quite a few oh, years ago. That lake, was yes. Oh, lake. and they so they did that because of the type of was the non-absorbed fat, fat right? That. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah, that's kind of like the sugar substitutes are just
1: exactly. If you're eating too many, you know, um, sugar-free candies or sugar-free lozenges or things like that, that can definitely lead to some loose stools. Um, and really, sugar-free and in, in many things can do that, right? So to jump back to some of the other categories that we mentioned, um, you know, another not uncommon one that we see would be celiac disease and kind of separately gluten sensitivity, which really are two separate issues, but can present with similar symptoms. Right. So celiac disease is an autoimmune mediated reaction to gluten, which is found in wheat and gliadins. Um, And so that's that's present in up to one percent of the population most commonly it's diagnosed uh, you know probably in childhood or early adulthood but really it can be diagnosed at any age Um, symptoms can vary a lot but the most common symptoms that we would say would be fatty uh, fatty stools that are greasy um, potentially weight loss and some nutritional deficiencies and again this is present in one maybe a l- around one percent of the population, higher in some um, ethnic groups. And then wheat sensitivity is uh, a little different, and that's considered to be more of an allergy to wheat itself, where people don't have the antibodies to it, um, often don't have the weight loss but do have the bloating and um, diarrhea when they, when they consume wheat. Um, and so you know,
0: basically, you just have to avoid gluten in those situations.
1: Yeah. And, you know, previously, you know, we've known about celiac disease for some time. I think wheat sensitivity is something that is being recognized more as of late. And again, it's not, um, it itself is not an autoimmune thing. But I do, you know, know that people, there are people who don't tolerate wheat and who don't feel well when they eat it. And so avoiding it, even if they don't have celiac disease, can be beneficial.
0: I think it's something that, you know, unless you can do a lot of... um you can get a lot of information online, but it's probably worth seeing a dietician in those instances because it's really hard to to be truly gluten-free.
1: Yeah, gluten is hidden in a lot of different things. And so um, talking with a dietician or somebody who really knows, knows the disease well is important for sure. You know, fortunately... There are more products now on the market that are available, you know, as, as bread replacements or flour replacements or things like that. Um, but historically, it's been pretty challenging. Right. I actually had my
0: first um, diagnosis of dermatitis herpetiformis really? in the last couple of months, which is basically a, a skin manifestation
1: of celiac disease. And sometimes that shows up before people have other symptoms. Sometimes it's later, but it can happen if they have celiac and they um, are consuming gluten and gliadin, then that can show up. Not too common, but yeah, I would say you know in our region it's probably more like one in seventy. I've seen different numbers, but it's it's not uncommon at all in the people of northern northern European descent, and so. Um, definitely more prevalent in our region than in others, but probably on average around 1% of the population has it. So that is something else to be aware of, and it definitely you know needs to be ruled out when patients are having those fatty, loose stools. I think it's often more often
0: diagnosed in the fourth, fifth decades of life, which maybe they've had it, but the symptoms don't come enough to... Right? I don't know why we wouldn't be finding it early. finding it until yeah. the fifth decade of, of life. Yeah. I guess I think something
1: impedes but you're right. right it's probably and I've diagnosed patients as old as probably 70 or 80 too. So it's it's surprising really how, yeah. how and when it can present. Yep. So then there are two other things that kind of look similar, I would say. Um, and we mentioned already small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Um So that presents with bloating, weight loss, gas again, but what happens is you get excessive bacteria in the small intestine. And then another, I I consider it similar in presentation, although pathologically they're not the same, but another one that's kind of, to me, similar would be microscopic colitis. Right. And I see that, you know, as a geriatrician,
0: I see mostly people over the age of 70 and I seem to be diagnosing this quite a bit. Yeah. Um, So, you know, kind of chronic diarrhea, uh, bloating, plus or minus weight loss. Um, Often people aren't losing a lot of weight. It's just they're sick of having the loose stools and and the problems that come with that. Um, So often this is related to certain medications can put you at increased risk. And that's also, I mean, it's a big list, but it's NSAIDs, it's the the proton pump inhibitors, it's the SSRIs um, that can cause this. But I see it often, and and we kind of treat that a a different way than you do the others. It's not, I mean, you eliminate what potential causes, like those medications I talked about, um, and see if it resolves. But if not, sometimes you have to treat with... um, certain medications.
1: Right. And so testing for these can be done. It's not perfect. And so sometimes we do just try, do a trial of treatment and see if people respond. And if they do, that's kind of our answer. Um, If they don't, then we do need to um, potentially get gastroenterology involved for further checking. Right. Anything
0: I think we already talked about, kind of other things we're always ruling out, right? So typical... Labs that you might do if if um if you came and saw me, I don't often do the stool studies right away because I don't feel like uh, they generally get us too far um sometimes I will there's certainly lots of stool studies, right, but the stool for infection I don't generally do
1: um unless you have reasons to to check those things and yeah, I would say I tend to start with just kind of basic labs looking for. Electrolyte dysfunction because of the loose stools and the frequency, um, potentially a blood count looking for signs of infection or inflammation because that helps kind of narrow what we're thinking about. I don't do the stool studies initially either. Um, I'll often get the thyroid, the TSH to rule out thyroid is contributing. And then, yeah, looking at the other things that we talked about, like medications and diet and those kinds of things before we start more um, aggressive testing.
0: And I certainly, we would do the more aggressive stuff earlier on if you had any of the red flag symptoms, which would be you're losing weight despite eating um, a normal amount of food and blood um, in the stool. Fevers, chills, things like that associated with it. Right. Certainly, uh, if you had traveled someplace that you could get more of the infectious uh, traveler's diarrhea type causes, right, that would... Trigger us to do those stool studies sooner, um, and if you'd had recent antibiotic course, uh, we would probably do
1: the stool study for that C. difficile. Exactly. Well, I think that's a good overview of what happens with diarrhea when patients come in, and the things that we are thinking about. Um, you know, as a patient if it's been more than four weeks and you're not having any of those red flag symptoms, certainly starting a food journal and kind of a symptom journal before you go see your doctor could be helpful or while you're waiting to see your doctor so that they have some information to review when you come in.
0: Right, looking at changes that you've made in your diet or things that other things you're putting in your mouth like medicines or supplements. Exactly, yeah. That'll help us uh, figure things out sooner than later. Exactly,
1: yep. And then if you feel like, you know, you've done a basic evaluation with your doc and things just aren't getting figured out or you're still having symptoms, it's okay to be a little persistent and, you know, let them know that you're still having symptoms and they will do more testing. Right. You know, certainly in individuals over 50 for sure, potentially over 45 Um, If they haven't had a recent colonoscopy, that's certainly an appropriate thing to do, especially if there are any red flag symptoms, but also just with a change in in bowel habits without any other identifiable changes because we want to make sure nothing, nothing big and bad is going on too. Right. So what's our health pearl for today, Lindsay?
0: I think since we're still in this COVID pandemic that, um, one, it would be things are looking good with two of the front-running vaccines um, having really good um, efficacy in their studies that are coming out. So I think we all um, should be excited and be willing to uh, get those when they're rolled out in
1: our area. Yeah, I think that once they pass the FDA approval and the vaccine committee and the FDA, they're going to make sure that everything, the studies are well done and the safety is good before they approve them. So if they do get approved, um, I would strongly urge you, especially if you're in one of the higher risk groups, to get that vaccine. Certainly, you know, if we're looking at long-term risks of the vaccine versus getting the infection itself, the um, risks of the infection are very high. And so it would be a good idea for most people to get the vaccine. Correct. And then just want to reiterate that um, we
0: should still practice good hand washing, social distancing, um, and
1: face masking when you're out and about. Yeah, we're kind of in the in the heat of the pandemic right now, I think nationwide. And so um, doing all of those things, I know some people are still traveling for the holidays. But if you are taking all of the precautions that you can, and if you're not good for you hopefully you can connect with family and friends in other ways this time and then hopefully by next year things will be much better so stay safe and healthy absolutely thanks so much for tuning in again you can find us at everythingdoc.com and we're also on facebook
0: and twitter you can listen to us on uh, many of the podcast
1: platforms including apple google Play and Spotify, yeah. Amazon Music and Stitcher. All right. We'll have a great week. Bye-bye. Bye.